Hello, money cousin. This is the founder of Icon Nation and the host of this show, Asa Laveau. I am making sure that you, my money cousin, <laughs> yes, my money cousin, have clarity around my invitation to you joining Icon Nation. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to go to www.iconnation.co. I'll say that again, www.iconnation.co and join the other money cousins there. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Icon Conversations. I am your host, Ace Laveau. I am ecstatic and pleased that you are here. If you did not know about this month, I'm just going to be the first one to tell you, happy Pride. Uh, this is definitely a Pride edition of Icon Conversations. If you are wondering why in the world would I do this, well, if you don't know by now, <laughs> if, seriously, if you don't know that I'm queer by now, I don't know what you've been doing. I don't know what you've been seeing or watching or extrapolating from my content, but I am definitely that. Uh, very proud pansexual individual. Uh, and I, my intention and my desire is to support and highlight other queer LGBTQ2 plus entrepreneurs during Pride Month and beyond. I never want to feel like uh, my, me myself are contained and only celebrated or tolerated during a certain month that is not uh, what I desire for myself nor any other person on earth. So if you are brand spanking new to Icon Conversations, please know that you are in the right place at the right time for the right reasons. How do I know that? Because I know for a fact that you desire to grow your business. I know for a fact that me talking about icons, whether it is our agency, House of Icons, whether it is the different programs and products um, under our umbrella agency, such as Icon University, Icon Incubator, or the Icon Experience, you understand or you are gravitated toward the icon. Now, some of some people, some people have come to me and they're like, Ace, why would you even? do something with the word icon in it. Isn't that a bit boisterous? Isn't that a bit egotistical? Uh, are you looking for fan worship or anything like that? And the answer is no to all of those things. Icon, if you look at the definition of icon, it is someone who understands or occupies a certain sphere of influence in a particular industry. So I know my mission, my desire is to support those individuals who are the brand uh, the faces of their brands, the spokesperson of their brands, and they are the stars of their industry, and they are necessary, so necessary. Why are they necessary? Because the people that do work in the background are also very necessary, and you can have both. You can celebrate both people from who they are and how they are, and that's what everything that I do around being iconic or becoming an icon is all about, and today, uh, we have someone that is definitely in that vein. I see them as definitely someone who um, is going to add a lot of value to you today. Uh, they are coming from a place of spiritualism, but a space of let's get you paid. Like there's nothing wrong with getting <laughs> no money in the bank. And I love that. 
And that's why I believe that today is going to be a day um, that is going to support you. So without further ado, I would love to introduce to you Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hello, Asa. How are you today? I am peaceful. That's how I am today. I am peaceful today. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm in a good, good. Good. So before we start, uh, one of the ways that I engage first is I love to learn a little bit about the little you that was. And so what I mean by that is I would love to know what was your favorite toy growing up? Oh, that's a hard question for me. <laughs> okay. I like to dress up. I didn't have a toy, but I love to put on all kinds of different clothes and put on makeup and probably baby drag queen. Um, <laughs> but I really, really love to dress up. I didn't like um, dolls or anything like that, but I really mm -hmm. loved to read. So I was a reader and I loved to play pretend and sing Broadway shows and all that stuff like that. Yeah. Really? You yeah. know Broadway shows when you Oh, honey, I know all the Broadway shows. Okay, how does a little human know Broadway show? Okay, the first, okay. I was introduced to Broadway shows, hmm, junior high, because I was in Fiddler on the Roof in junior high and Bye Bye Birdie. So my mother loved Broadway shows. Oh. So I was raised on Broadway shows. <laughs> The song that, like, Hello, Dolly, that was my song when I was a little girl, when I was two. My first Broadway show was Jesus Christ Superstar. I was eight years old when I went to see it. I mean, it was just part of my life growing up. So, like, like I, my therapist and I joke because we both are the same way. There's gay men living inside of us because we <laughs> love Broadway shows. She's a lesbian, too. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so what did... What were you desiring to complete or experience as you, be, as you were dressing up? Well, it was because um, I grew up in a really chaotic home. There was alcoholism in it and a lot of arguing and a lot of fighting. I'm the youngest of five children, but I'm nine years after my last sibling. So by the time I was growing up, everybody was out of the house. And so I think I used play to escape. I, read, I used reading to escape. And so it made me really smart. I was really always really good in school and stuff like that. But I, you know, I used it to stay out of the way and to escape what was going on in the home. That makes complete sense. And did you continue a feeling of desiring to escape? Or do you feel that looking back, that there was a time where you're like, you know what, I don't have to escape anymore? Um. I don't know if it was, you know, it, it wasn't, um, did I ever feel a feeling of escape? That's a really great question. Um, I don't think I felt the need to escape. Well, actually I was really trying to escape heteronormativity for a really mm, long time. Yeah. And, um, and then I gave in and got <laughs> married and had children and then really didn't leave it again until I was in 50. So I didn't come out until I was 50. And, um, you know, I never thought about it as escaping. I, and, and I wasn't, and I want to be really clear, it's not that I was really unhappy in that part of my life. But when I finally left that part of my life behind, I was very glad to escape it, that escape that. 
you know, that heteronormative narrative that I had lived. So coming out at 50. Yeah, I know, huh? So as someone who came out at 30, <clears throat> and I'm 40. Oh, you're older. Yes, That's and, older. I'm, and I'm 40 today. So I definitely understand Being that an part of it, though I don't understand fully, of course. But I would love to know, number one, what kept you uh, to, to not share that with anyone? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm somebody who always, so I work with people coming out later in life. So I'm one of the people that always knew I was gay. Like I knew, I knew that when I was young. Um, probably 19. It was also the 80s. So like being people didn't come out until their 20s in back in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it was ex unless you were a man, because we teach men to listen to their own voices. We don't teach our girls to listen to their voices. So uh, by and large, women come out later than men. Not so much now, but back then. Um, and so one of the things is I sort of knew I was, but I didn't know what to do with it. I grew up very religiously. And um, I grew up in the Catholic church, I was super religious and you know, sex was bad in the Catholic church. My God, gay sex, oh. So I, it was just not something that was part of my wheelhouse. And I'll be really honest with you. So I, I, I knew like, I knew that like the, I wasn't like really attracted to white guys. So my fiance was an African-American man. Ben, who I dated for a while, and I've noticed that in the later in life community that a lot of women often date men, men of other races, because I think they think, well, this, this isn't working for me. Maybe I'll, I'll try this person or I'll try that person. But I was still in the heteronormative narrative. Mm -hmm. And so probably about 10 years before I officially came out, I started the process of coming out. And it was like, I, you know, I told people, my ex-husband knew, you know, before six, six years before I made the official stuff, he knew that I was gay then. I told him then. Um, so it was a really like long and drawn out process. And what kept me in life I led, I mean, I had four kids. I mean, my, my oldest was, is now 32. My youngest is uh, 20. And I had four kids. I was firmly in my life. I was a minister. I had, you know, I had ministered to two different churches in my hometown. And, you know, I just was sort of wrapped up in the life I had created. And it was a good life. It, it wasn't a bad life. It just was very, very lonely because the only person that can meet my emotional, spiritual, and physical and sexual needs is a woman. A man cannot meet that for me. And so it took a long time to get to that point and to accept that about myself. But it took, it was 10 years of me like putting my foot out of the closet, putting it back in, putting it up, putting it in. So what was so as you're coming out and you know to have children, because I'm a dad and I know what that's like. I, 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 I'm always interested first in what did your children say? Well, first of all, as you know, it's, it really isn't about them. It's about me. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd like to say that my bookends had the, were the best. My oldest daughter was pretty incredible. Like she really was, but she was also the one 
that she knew about, she knew much more about the problems in the marriage between her father and I. She knew that I, I, she was the first person I ever came out to. Like, and so like, it was like in a really random conversation in which I said to her, you know, if dad and I don't end up together in the long run, don't be surprised if I end up with a woman. That's literally how I came out to my daughter. Um, so she knew my baby, my youngest, he's 20 now, he sort of had to go through it. You know, he literally had to go through the, you know, we were living together. He was the only one left at home. He was, you know, he had to go through it. And so he actually had to sort of, he had to feel the feelings and go through all those things. And so, and he spent the most time with now my now wife and I. Um, so he did really well. My second, my second child and my third child, not so much. And in fact, my second child is non-binary and um, they had the hardest time of it of, of all. Okay, I would love to unpack that. I would too. When you <laughs> Like the person you have the most tension with is the person that almost you're, you share more commonality with. Well, that's what the really interesting thing is. And um, actually it was the child I was the closest to when they were growing up. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I'm not quite sure why they're so upset. Their siblings are like, why are you so pissed off at mom still? Um, but uh, the thing is, is that it's their journey. They have to go through what they need to go through. I love them to the moon and back times infinity. But, and it's been incredibly painful for me, but they're really on their own journey. And like a lot of non-binary folks, they come out as non-binary and sometimes they move into transitioning and they are somewhere on that journey right now. And what's really hard for me is that I would be their biggest cheerleader and biggest supporter, but they don't want me on that journey. And so I have to just accept that. And, and it's really sad because the other three kids really sort of miss them as well. And not, not sort of, they do miss them as well. So it's been a really, it's been really painful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I know what um, parent pain looks <laughs> like, sounds like, tastes like. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wish, I wish and I desire for that relationship to be all that it can be yeah. at the time that it will be. Um, yeah, because life isn't over. It's not over. Some miraculous things could still come. Well, and also too, this was my child that always hated change, even when they were little. Mm. Also, they had a very idealized idea of what their dad and I's relationship was. And they didn't, and honestly, I think the more the fact is they didn't like the fact that we got divorced and I was the one who initiated the divorce, mm -hmm. um, but they didn't, they were pissed about, they were angry about that. So I can't, I, I can't do anything about it. And it's really hard as a parent. I know you have kids, so you must, you know, you understand that. Um, and it's really painful when you have an estrangement from someone you love. So whether it is my wife is estranged from her father, he hasn't talked to her in 40 years because she's gay. And so it's been actually really wonderful to have her because she gets it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. from the other way, uh, you know, but right. she gets it. And she has given me some really wise advice about loving someone from afar. 
when they're so angry at you or so disappointed in you or whatever my child is feeling that they cannot have me in their life. What do you do on a daily, weekly, hourly basis to keep your, your heart and your spirit and your energy so alive the way I'm experiencing you now um, when you're so, still going through all the go-plus? Um, so this is really recent. So I came out about seven years ago. This just happened like six months ago. Um, first of all, I, I have horrible periods of grief. I'm a grief counselor. So this is that, that's the good thing. I'm the grief, I'm a grief counselor. So I understand what grief is like. I, I, I get it. And so I know when I'm grieving, I let myself grieve. So there's sometimes I'll leave the bed at night and go cry in the other room. Um, but I also, and then there's also times where I just sort of have to put it on the box and the shelf in my closet and just leave it there. Because if I spent all my time chasing some, somebody who at this moment in our life together doesn't want a relationship, that's an awful lot of wasted energy that I could definitely put to something else. But I also feel the feelings. I'm a big, huge believer in feeling the feelings. And believe me, if you had talked to me about four months ago, I wouldn't be as ebullient as I am right now. I'm okay right now. And I also keep thinking of it in the terms of the universe. Like, what is the universe trying to teach me? What is it trying to teach me with this? And I had a lot of shame about the estrangement at first. But I was a really great mom to them. They're on their own journey and there's nothing I can do about it. And so like, why keep beating your head against the wall? I totally get that. I, someone, I am someone who was estranged from my son for over a year. And not only was I a stranger in that time, but I was also in Afghanistan um, oh, that entire time. And so I was definitely one that was like, look, they might not, he might not understand this yet, and he might be receiving all types of information about me, but here's the thing. I love my son, period, point blank. I'm going to do the best I can do for me, just for me, whatever anyone else does, whatever anyone else does, hey, great to you. But what I did, I continued writing letters. Uh, I continued reaching out and I always kept this thought. I like... Like the way that I was when I was 15 and I wanted a driver's license when I was 16, like that consistent, constant thought, like, oh, one day this is going to happen. I was that into it. And I was like, you know what? One day he's going to look at me. He's going to tell me I love you. And it took a year. It took a year, but it happened. So I am, I'm just some, I'm just hopeful for what yeah. can take place. My oldest daughter is still quite in and, and and by the way, my oldest daughter got married in um, April, and my second child was there. Um, we were very cordial to each other. It's not like we like scream at each other. It's we were both cordial and polite and everything like that because we both love their sister. Um, and so it was their sister's day, and it wasn't about us or anything like that. And both of us are you know mature enough to know that, and mm -hmm. so none of that stuff happened. Um, but it's like one of those things is that, you know, you just like, when I came out, I had to let, let go of my, like, my, my whole entire life in a lot of ways, you know, a 27 year marriage, my ministry work, some of my ministry work, um, my home that I lived in for a long time, I had to let go, I, I've sort of become an expert 
in letting go and mm-hmm. learning how to let go. I ha- I've, I've learned how to let go. But my oldest daughter has said to me, she goes, you know, they're, they have so much anger, mom, they have to work through. And maybe this is good for right now that they do this work and then maybe they'll be back. And I'm like, yeah, maybe we'll see. You know, I'm hopeful, but I'm not like, um, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm not, I won't be devastated if it doesn't happen, you know, because I've worked through it, you know. You really have to be able to get to that point. I must (laughs) say you have really done. I worked through everything, honey. For (laughs) a parent to say that, you have definitely uh, come to a, a really good landing place. For yourself and I would love to know how has your your how has your spiritual practice the fact that you know you are an ordained minister how has that allowed you or helped you come to this um so one of the things that I really practice is meditation I've been practicing meditation I teach it too I've been practicing it oh my gosh like 10 years now um I used to run a meditation class for people in recovery. And um, so one of the things is that I practice meditation big time. I get in touch with my um, inner child. I get in touch with my, um, my higher power. Uh, I find a lot of comfort in that. I find a lot of comfort in the community of others, of people who understand. Um, I allow myself to be vulnerable about this and to talk about this because there's so much shame around estrangement in families that, you know, 37% of all families have some estrangement in it. And so like, just like a lot of things like, oh, being gay that we don't talk about. It's like, we have to talk about these things because people have to realize that they're not alone. And so, it's, it's part of a ministry now. I didn't expect to talk about this here on the here today, but some, here we are, so here we are. <laughs> but that's okay, because maybe the universe needs it, needed it to be said, and maybe someone in your audience has the needs to hear this right now, that it's okay and you can get through these estrangements. And you really, you truly can, you really can. Yeah. And the, the work you've done being an ordained minister, do you find that the experiences you've gone through as far as being gay, as far as estrangement, as far as uh, borrowed estrangement experiences from your wife, does that make you a better minister? Yes, but I don't, I am not a practicing, like I don't, I'm not a pastor anymore. And okay. When I served as a minister, I was always a chaplain. So mm-hmm. I worked in hospitals and hospices and stuff like that. Um, the experience of coming out later in life and having this sense of loss um, has really brought me closer to, you know, I don't use the word God because God's so loaded. And so I use higher Same. Yeah, I use higher power, ultimate source, you know, mm-hmm. I don't use that word. Um, but are you, were you raised Christian by any chance? I was raised Church of God in Christ. Okay, so then I can- <laughs> With both my, both my parents being pastors. Okay, so let me just tell you this story. So I came out three weeks after I was ordained. And when I got ordained, I was ordained in the United Church of Christ, which is a very progressive denomination. It is, yes. 
Yeah, and that's and so my coming out in the UCC was like a blip. Yeah, had, like, church didn't care. They didn't right. care. Plus, I wasn't a pastor, so they didn't care. If I had been a pastor, they might have gotten care. True. They didn't care. Um, so basically, I came out when I was ordained, and it the story is is that um, it was three weeks after I was ordained. Um, I had a patient in hospice that had a really horrible death, and before she died, she had said to me, I feel like I've been waiting for something. This is the Reader's Digest version. I feel like I've been waiting for something my entire life. What she said really, really stuck with me. Not to make the audience nervous, 99.9% .9 of people who die in hospice have these incredibly beautiful and wonderful deaths, but she had a really poor one. It was, and I like held her and urged her to go while she was dying. Excuse me, that should not be happening right now. Um, that was my youngest child. Um, so uh, I don't know why that happens. My phone's off. So um, you can cut that out. <laughs> so, uh, so I had a little bit of PTSD. And so then I was ordained. And, and my ex-husband and I were really, really struggling again. And I was like, said to my sister after my ordination, you know, I've, you know, I've got to go back to therapy because you know, we're struggling again and I really need a soft place to land. And so when I back, went back to therapy, um, I started telling my therapist about this incredible experience I had with this patient. And um, she, I said, I, she said to me, she, she said to me, so Anne-Marie being a therapist, she said, what are you waiting for? And I said, and like, I literally had like my life flash before my eyes. And I said, I think I'm gay. And that's when it all started. It was about three weeks after I was ordained. Now, my therapist, friend, my, my clergy friend said, once you get ordained, something's going to happen. You're never going to like it. It's really going to surprise you. And, and they said, when I came out, some of them said to me, well, that makes sense because God ordained your whole self not just pieces of yourself. Can you just say that again, please? Um, God ordains your whole self, not just pieces of yourself. So God ordained this piece of me, but also too, in the biblical context of the, like when the rich man goes to Jesus and says, you know, um, like the, the rich, it's like, I don't, I don't know which one, where, where Jesus says, you have to give up your family. You have to get everything to serve me, you know, that, that parable. I mm -hmm. can't, yeah, you know which one I'm talking I about. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, sometimes in this journey, I have thought about that. Like I literally lost everything, but it has given me such a greater understanding of connection, of community, of, such beautifulness, especially in the queer community. And because I lost all that other stuff, um, it has made me somebody who deeply believes in a power greater than myself. Not to say that I had about two years of being really angry that this had happened because I was just angry. <laughs> And so, and, but, you know, this is the thing is that I know the source can handle my anger. So, you know, it'll be fine. <laughs> and, and now that, and now that you are, or you feel like your anger was then a thing and you come into this place of peace, 
Um, I know that you've written a memoir called Authentic Peace. Mm -hmm. Did did you write the book post this experience or before? Yeah, post. It's it's actually the word peace, P-E-A-C, is a play on the word peace, P-I-E-C-E, because I talk about in the first chapter how I was always missing a piece and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then when I finally came out, I found the missing piece. And that's why I call it authentic piece. That's that really sweet. It was post. <laughs> and what, what's something that you, as you were writing that, what is something that you, you desired for people to understand as a result of reading authentic piece? I wanted to name my experience as a woman growing up, like in the, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s. And um, the experience, the experiences I had as somebody who, like my first experience was with a girl. And, but I put it away, you know, because I, I, you know, when you have those experiences when you're young. So I had two experiences that summer, one with a girl and one with a boy. I kissed a boy and had an experience with a boy. The boy experience got filed in a way as this pleasant little memory of my first kiss and the experience with the girl got filed away as this experience of shame. And when I came out, I was like, oh, that's really normal for a little lesbian to be doing something like that. Yes. That is so normal. And so what I wanted people to see is like with my story that um, that a lot of the stuff I talk about was really super normal. And also like, you know, dating people, all kinds of different people. Um, also, you know, divorce and divorcing a nice guy and, you know, your children and all that stuff. So I really told that. Now, now I want to like write, write a part two. That was written like four years ago, three years ago. Okay. So a lot has happened since then. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Would you add in some things around business? Because I know that you definitely yeah. know about building businesses. Would you incorporate that into your next book? Yeah, I would. Because what happened is that, so like a lot of coaches, um, I, so first of all, I, so what changed this experience this time when I came out later in life, I Googled late in life lesbian and mm. I found a Facebook group and it was a secret hidden Facebook group. And, and what happened, what it changed my life because all of a sudden I was with a group of women who were talking about the same things, talking about things I had only thought about in my head and never had said out loud, said out loud. And so, but, and so that, that, that group became my community, but I also came into that group as a minister, as a bereavement counselor, like as with a ton of life experiences. And so I saw a need in that group. I saw so many people really, really grieving. And so I started my first little group as a grief group. And then I realized, oh my God, there's so much to unpack here, including internalized homophobia, authentic self and conditioned self, um, codependency, all kinds of stuff that I started to realize that it was much more than grief. Um, and so from that, I started to coach people. I mean, I started with groups and then somebody said, hey, would you see me one-on-one? -on -one? And I was like, sure. And so as time went on, um, I got better and better at it. it. And, you know, a coaching business, you know, I know you work with entrepreneurs, a coaching business, a successful coaching business doesn't happen overnight. No. That takes a long time. There's no shiny pennies. 
no fill your course in five days <laughs> none of that stuff works it is on the ground consistent work over and being an entrepreneur over showing up again and again and again mm -hmm. and so I bought I built this business and it was built around the needs of the later in life lesbian community um eventually it expanded to later in life folks that were identified as women or were comfortable in female spaces. So I had trans women in the group. I also had non-binary folks in the groups as well. So, and then, you know, I don't know about you, but I get bored. And so after about five years of doing this, I was like, you know, I think I want to do something else. And so now that I've learned how to be a coach, I know I can teach other people how to get real clear about who they want to serve because a lot of times people don't have clarity because caregivers say, I can help everybody, which they can. They but can, but mm -hmm. yeah, you have to figure out who you want to help. Yes. And, and then I also do a lot with visibility because caregivers also really struggle with visibility because we're taught, like for me, it was really hard because as a minister, I was taught to be like, you know, it's all about your congregation and your as in chaplaincy about your patients and you're just in the background. And so to be able to like push myself out into the foreground was really, really hard. And then I also teach about money mindset because people really struggle with that. Women mm -hmm. about charging enough for what they're worth. And I also talk about, teach about logoing and branding and stuff like that. The fun stuff of building a business, you know, what's your favorite colors? Let's do it, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. So as you, so it sounds, now who do you do the, what you're doing now as far as helping uh, caregivers with, you know, the visibility, the money mindset and the branding, who are you supporting with with that? Are those still the, uh, the women and women experienced people or is that another subset of people? Um, right now it's basic, right now it's all women experience. I am still in the process of doing my expansion and and so I really want to work with queer folks. So this is the thing is I do believe we need more queer entrepreneurs out there. I think we need to have more queer business owners out there. I, I think that it's really important that we build um, support and services for the communities that we love, that we love. So, if, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm at the point in my life, if you're not an ally, then I don't think we're a good fit for each other. You know, we're, just not, we're just not I love you God bless you go on your way but I am not I don't have enough energy to deal with that and also to someone who's not an ally wouldn't choose to work with me anyway but um but the thing is is that I I think that we need to build really great communities and I'm really good at community building I know how to do that you know I've done it again and again and again and again and so I really think that's really important that we do that and have places of safety for people to go and congregate. And I can't do it all. So I want to like help other people do it. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Now, one thing that I'm, I'm getting from you talking is that you once, or maybe still don't want to create a narrative for you at all, but you definitely once had a high level of shame like absolutely for sure <laughs> and then with the the women people who have women experiences their shame and then i think i believe that if you're a queer person living in america or the world in, at large there's just the level of shame that you just come to you just come with. 
um, based on what you've experienced. Now, you may not be living in that shame, but you definitely experience shame as a queer person. So with you desiring to support this uh, set of humans that are queer, how do you do that? And knowing that they come, a lot of us come with a high level of guilt and shame. Do you prepare yourself for that? Do you um, just expect it? So it's interesting because I'll tell you my experience. So my wife is probably the most proud queer person you have ever met. And I was very lucky to meet her. And like, she's the first woman I ever dated. Oh. We ended up marrying, got, got married. We were together five years, got married a couple of years ago. Um, and she is probably the one most like, like fierce, but comfortable in her skin human about being queer. She had a ton of shame when she came out. I mean, you know, she thought she was going to shoot shit straight to hell. She's Southern Baptist, you know, all those things like that. So one day I was with a, a patient and she, we were dating then and she had come up to visit me because of course we're lesbians. So we had a 1200 mile long distance relationship <laughs> that's like sort of a prerequisite for being a lesbian <laughs> and so um we're experts at long distance dating and, and she, we are and so she um she came up to visit and I had been out with a patient and it was this very religious woman deeply conservatively religious woman um, and uh, I used to sing hymns with my patients. I know all the old hymns and stuff like that. And so I was singing with her. And then all of a sudden I had this thought, oh my God, what would she do if she knew I was gay? So I had just come out. And it's like, oh my God, I'm going to be a lesbian minister for the rest of my life. And I was like, 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 I just couldn't, I'm like, I was like so much like shame and like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. So I came home, told Tonda that her name is Tonda. And she goes to me, Anne Marie, you get to be a lesbian minister for the rest of your life. Like, how cool is that? And so when I had internalized homophobia showing up, I had someone challenging me over and over in a loving and kind way yeah. you know but over and over again and so I always feel like I always say that she gave me the crash course on being a lesbian because like um because I went through that process of of having guilt and shame and now I'm at the point where I'm an activist mm -hmm. you know, I I have to meet the tennis C3 and all that stuff like that. I'm an activist now. So I really went through that process. And so a lot of people who are queer and who are like thinking about business, they haven't really sometimes dealt with their shame about being queer. And one of the things that shame is I am a bad person while guilt is um, I have done something bad. And guilt is actually a good emotion at some time because sometimes you have done something bad and you need to apologize and you need to make amends but shame comes from this place of I have I am a bad person what I have found with my work with women is that I follow the model of Renee Brown which is when you put shame in a petri dish and you douse it with empathy it loses and you douse it with what empathy you it loses oh. its power I love Brene Brown that said that in her first book. And I love that. 
And so what I have done consistently over the last four or five years is douse the shame with empathy, like, and sort of reframe things for people so that they start to see it in another way. Like that being gay isn't this horrible, shameful, terrible thing, but actually quite beautiful and, and an amazing expression of humanity. And, you know, my wife's favorite verse is, I am wonderfully and fearfully made. And, I, and that's what I tell people all the time. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. And if people have, like, if people don't have a religious background, they don't get it. But people who do have one, they get it. <laughs> I definitely get it. Yeah. Sure. But, you know, it's a great, it's a great, it's true. And, 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 you know, we are wonderfully and fearfully made for, as queer people. And there's a reason why there's queer people, because there's purpose that we need to fulfill, you know? There is, and so there's a reason why there's queer people in the world and non-binary folks and trans folks. Yes. You know? Because diversity is incredibly beautiful. And so if we all look the same, it would be really boring here. <laughs> and acted the same, be really boring. <laughs> so boring. Do you remember sure. the, there was the Twilight Zone episode in which everybody got, like all the men got to be one model and all the women got to be one, one model. And it's like this, it was pretty scary. So. I always think about that. Mm, I need to find that one because that's that's an old one. That's a Rod Sterling one. Okay, that I need to find that one. That seems kind of <laughs> thought provoking, to be honest. So, as you are building this business, what keeps you going? Because as an entrepreneur, and I've been an entrepreneur since I was twenty-two. Like I said, I'm forty now, and so I am aware of the types of things that can happen <laughs> in the course of a day, a week, a quarter, and especially when you bring queerness into it, that's a whole nother thing. And then as a parent, on top of that, whole nother thing. And then later in life, meaning after 30, that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, after 40. Actually, later in life is very self-defined. So people, I have right. young as 25 and people over 70. Um, you know, I think there's ups and downs in business. Um, I was, my ex-husband was an entrepreneur, so I like watched him for years and like, it was like his biggest cheerleader for years. So like, I, I know that businesses have ups and downs. I know that sometimes we try things and they don't work out. Mm -hmm. um, once you find a formula though, that works, you really need to learn to stick with it. You have to be not afraid to put yourself out there. And just, you know, I find that um, I love being an entrepreneur. I love it. Like, first of all, I worked, you know, in jobs where you'd have to do the PTO stuff and all that stuff like that. And I always chafed under that. I hated that. I love having the flexibility for my life. You know, I love running out during the day and doing something for a couple hours and then coming back. I love being able to see my kids and travel you know, here or there and, you know, set up my mic in Connecticut or in California with my other kid is and be able to, you know, tape my podcast and things like that. So that part of being an entrepreneur is the best part of all. Um, worrying about the money, worrying about how you're going to pay things, worry about how you're going to pay your staff. Those things aren't so fun. I want to get to the point where I don't have to worry anymore. I hope that. Thanks. Yeah. So I have a great staff. I have a couple of people that work for me and it's just, you know, it, 
and I want to keep them and I want to keep having it because they're good people and I want them to keep being able to give them more hours and things like that. And so that's the hard part about being an entrepreneur and always having to look for a set. Like right now, I'm still like, not really, but not as bad. It's not as much as beginning, but you know, you're still like looking when you do coaching, you're always putting yourself out there and marketing and making sales and doing all those things. Yeah. And that's, you know, sometimes you're tired. You know, and so I've learned to really have pretty strict boundaries. I work an eight hour day. Um, so after we're done with this conversation, I'm going to go to happy hour. Um, I'm very, I very strict about not working on the weekends anymore. Like I literally will give my computer to my wife and say, do not give this back to me because if I don't, then I'll start working. And so I have to be really, really strict about that. And uh, I feel you on the strictness of <laughs> stopping. Um, and it, I will say it's easier to stop when you have someone there to stop you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, me, myself, I have definitely, <laughs> at the detriment of who I be, literally woken up, taken the laptop off the floor, put it on my lap and started and did not. I do that every single day. Ugh. Oh my God. You know, what is really good is that the, my phone now, you can like set it to, there's all kinds of settings where you don't get bothered. And so that's like, yeah. and I love that because like, so for example, if a text comes across, I just see iMessage now. I don't know what the text says. Right. I have one that has increased my product productivity incredibly because I get a lot of texts. So, you know, learning to use technology to take care of yourself too. That's important, you know? So important. So, so very important. So as we begin to wrap up this time together, one thing that I would love to know, because this is Pride Month, um, I understand that there are, because it's Pride Month, there have been a lot of things that are being or have been curated to talk about the different things about being queer that are hurtful, are not life-giving, are that make you cry, that are sorrowful. And I am not casting that, that away at all, but I am choosing my focus. And my focus, Good stuff. my focus is joy. I am a addicted to joy and I don't make any qualms about that I make no sessions for that I make no apologies for that I love I and I saturate myself in that way so that when I have to go to the bathroom at 3 15 in the a.m um, I have a joyful thought that comes because I have saturated myself throughout the day with that rather than <laughs> going in the bathroom whenever to cry about a story <laughs> at four o'clock in the afternoon so with that being said I would love to know with the life that you have now Life that you build. What does queer joy look like, taste like, sound like, one or all of those things for you now? Queer joy is being seen as who I was made to be. Queer joy is being totally in love with my wife, unlike the love I had with my ex-husband, which was based on friendship. Um, queer joy is having a wonderful group of friends that are all queer. That family is amazing. Uh, 
my queerness has allowed me to do things that I never would have done if I stayed in a straight marriage because it just, just, I don't need to go into that. Um, queer joy is <laughs> discovering drag and falling in love with it. I watch, uh, you know, I'm a, we watch almost all the drag shows. My favorite is We're Here. I love that one. Oh, uh, you said it's We're Here? Yeah, that's the one. It's on um, uh, HBO Max. It's great. Three seasons. I drop Bob the Drag Queen's on it. and uh, I love Bob the Drag Queen. Go watch it tonight. You'll love it. Okay, um, I will. The, the premise is, is they go into these small towns and have a drag show. That's right. That's right. Small, small towns all over America. Um, Queer Joy is um, also like having a comfortableness in my skin that I have never had before in my life. And it's, it's like, it is the best, even though like I was talking to my oldest the other couple weeks, a couple months ago. And I said, I have no regrets, even though everything was incredibly hard. I have no regrets. I have none. And, you know, and I think the superpower of people who come out extraordinarily late, like me, is that, and you, is that we know what it's like to live a queer, uh, straight life. We really do because we live one. (laughs) (laughs) But we also know what it's like to live a queer life. And I think that's a real, real superpower that um, it gives us perspective. And so I know the difference for me. I know the difference between a straight life and a queer life. And um, I'm much happier in a queer life. Even though I live in Tennessee with all the stupid... (laughs) Oh, you're in Tennessee. What part of Tennessee? I'm in Nashville. I'm in Nashville. Nashville. Okay, got Mm -hmm. it. Got Mm -hmm. it. So even seeing all the disturbing stuff, just it, but also too, I'm an activist. It makes me pissed off. Like, don't do that to people's children. Like, stay. Uh Keep your keep your business out of that. That's been between a parent, a doctor, and the kid. Not the state's business. (laughs) Not the state's business. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) So anyway. So when they come for us, you know, they'll have this on tape. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Because even though I'm addicted to joy, I'm still the guy that when I find out that, you know, I'm in Oklahoma, so if I find out a state bill is being, you know, resurrected or written that does not support queerness or trans rights, I am at the Capitol. Uh, I'm at the Capitol early and I'm staying late. Um, all of those things for sure. So I don't want anyone to ever think that, yes, even though I'm addicted to queerness, it doesn't mean that I am not aware. Yeah, it's not like you're being Pollyanna. No, no, no. No, you're not doing that. It's just like, it makes you, in a a sense, um, you become the hypocrisy. So like, so for example, having been married to a man and, you know, have lived that life, um, like how I noticed the, how I'm treated differently now that I'm with a woman. And so somebody mm-hmm. who's come out young doesn't know that. Like my wife doesn't see those things because she came at it like 18, mm. you know, but I see it because I get treated differently. And then I'm like, what? You're going to treat me differently because of who I go home and spend my life with, you know, like, are no. you serious dude you're really so that's when 
like that, like I see the hypocrisy of it. You're going to not like me because I, you know, I go home tonight at night and, and spend my night with my wife. Like that's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Agreed. Okay. We're done with our political. <laughs> no problem. But at the same time, never being done. Yeah. No, never yeah. being done. So yeah. as we wrap up this session, I, first off, thank you. Thank you for being completely open and yeah. transparent and authentic with, with me and with those that are co-creating this episode with us. Um, I definitely will not stop uh, this session before asking you, because I know somebody's listening or watching and saying, you know what? I think Anne-Marie might get me. <laughs> I, I believe Anne-Marie might just be the person that could help me with business things, that could help me with possibly even uh, the grieving that I'm going through. And I would love for her to really speak life into me and to hold my, you know, my proverbial hand along this journey. So if that person is out there, because we know that person is, how do they reach you? Okay, so my name is Anne-Marie Zanzel, A-N-N-E hyphen M-A-R-I-E. Don't worry about the hyphen so much. My last name is Zanzal, Z-A-N-Z-A-L. My, my uh, website is annemariezanzal.com. It's without the hyphen because Google doesn't like that. Um, and you can find me anywhere on any social media platform. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. Those are my four favorites. So those are the ones I'm on. And if you want to find me, you can find me there. Or you can just shoot me an email at support at emmariezanzel.com that works for me and please everyone know uh, i say off i say every episode there is gold in the notes so go to the show notes because all of those links that emory just stated are in the show notes i say again they're in the show notes if you email me i'll be nice i'm gonna say the same thing go to the show <laughs> notes <laughs> that's what they're there for and the links work I do not believe in links not working. So go there, please connect with Anne-Marie sooner rather than later. This is pride. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell if you're hearing this, you have you have 24 hours. You have 24 hours to reach out to Anne-Marie. And that's all I'm giving you. Of course, she's there, but I'm telling you, you have 24 hours. She's and if you're actually a later in life thing, I actually did something with my later in life community. I have an email list and I did Pride of Palooza. So there's actually a special right now if you want to work with me. And if you say you heard it here, I will give you the Pride of Palooza. Awesome. You said it's called <laughs> Pride of Palooza? Yeah, I made it up. Hey, I like it. I'm not hating on it at all. But I use it, you know, it's a great word for a selling tool. If you're going to sell something, you know, I call it Pride of, I'm a gay person and I like, you know, that's what I do. So I called it Pride of Palooza. You know what? Now think about it because everything I do is icon, like icon Palooza. That might you could do that. Pride of Palooza with the icons. I could. That would be fun. You could have a Pride of Palooza sale. That's what I did. It's Oh, nice. I like the way you think. I seriously was with my coach and he was coaching some of me, someone else. And she said something Palooza. And I was like, Pride of Palooza. That's yeah, I'm not mad about that at all. Not mad at all. But again, thank you so much You're for coming welcome. on. Um, I have enjoyed myself. This was a good use of my day. I do not feel as though um, this was a waste of time. This is perfect. Thank you so much. And dreams and blessings to you with everything that you have going on. 
Alrighty, thank you. You too, honey. Thank you. And as for you all that are out there, I'm gonna go to the show notes. And as always, uh, I am Asa Laveau, dreams and radical blessings.